when I'm on set and when I'm working, I'm I'm there and I'm engaged. I I love it. Love creating characters. It doesn't matter if it's a TV movie, an episode of a TV show, a good film, a bad film. It doesn't matter, man. I I love my job. The funny thing is, I remember doing when I did the movie Unforgiven. I was 26 years old and I never left set. I conversed quite a bit with Gene Hackman. I didn't fanboy, but I was just curious about certain career things. And one thing that stuck in my head about him was that he said, Lachlan, it doesn't matter what project you do. The film is bad if it's good, whatever. Always be prepared and do your work. And I've never forgot that. So, yeah. Action. Welcome to Cinema Splash Page. I'm Michael Brody, and back in the early 2000s, I managed a couple of comic book shops and ran a couple of video stores, too. Those were the days. Lately, I host a weekly radio program, publish the occasional short story, and spend my Sunday nights running a live show I call The Best Damn Trivia in Montreal. You can find me on stage asking some very silly questions every Sunday at 8 p.m. at a place called Grumpy's Bar in downtown Montreal, Quebec. My guest today is Lachlan Monroe, an actor, producer, and musician who, almost unbelievably, has over 260 professional credits on the IMDb. Okay, so, I have seen a lot of Lachlan's work. Not all of it, of course. That's not humanly possible. But from what I have seen, I believe I've started to recognize something of a pattern. Follow along with me here, and if you pay attention, you may start to notice something that I've noticed. While I had probably seen him several times on Canadian TV before this, I first became fully aware of Lachlan Monroe when I saw him give a standout performance in a 1998 movie called Dead Man on Campus. This is a film that is centered around two college students who try to convince their roommate, played by Lachlan, to kill himself in a scheme to help improve their grades. Later, I saw Lachlan get horrifically skewered by spikes while raiding a crypt in Dracula 2000. Still later, I saw Anthony Hopkins break several of Lachlan's fingers in a bar fight in a film called Blackway. And who can forget that time when he was crushed to death in a massage chair by an AI house named Margot in a movie called Margot. And there are dozens more incidents like this. Yes, Lachlan Monroe has been through a lot. He's even faced off against Jason Voorhees in a little film called Freddy vs. Jason and... It seems like Lachlan got the deluxe Jason treatment in that movie. He was not only electrocuted to the point of having his skin melt off, but then he also got his face repeatedly smashed into a computer console until he was very, extremely dead. Jason certainly wasn't taking any chances with that guy. At any rate, Hollywood certainly seems obsessed with trying to viciously murder my guest today, Lachlan Monroe. Lachlan, welcome to the show. Thank you, Michael. Thanks for having me, and please do not kill me. <laughs> uh, Lachlan, before we get going on our main topics today, I wanted to quickly touch on a few of your comic book-related roles. There's often something of a comic book theme running through this show, and I didn't want to miss the opportunity to mention four of the times you've appeared in comic adaptations. So let's start with that Smallville episode where you shot Lex Luthor in the arm. That's right. 
do you remember who hired me to do that? Oh, you're going to have to remind me. And I, I, I really did just watch this uh, sequence recently, but I still, I'm at a loss. I was hired by Oliver Queen. And the only reason I know this is because when I did an episode of Arrow and I was trying to kill Oliver Queen, a fan pointed out to me, they said, isn't it weird that you were hired by him to kill Lex Luthor and then you tried to kill him in Arrow? And I was like, oh, very astute. I didn't put that together. So that's how I know that, Michael. <laughs> the fan community will always jump in and let you know exactly where the continuity errors are and or inconsistencies. Yeah, that was a fun episode. That was a fun episode of Smallville because I've been friends with Michael Rosenbaum for for many years, we've played lots of hockey together down in L.A. and uh, So that was fun for him and I to get together and do that episode. Uh, so his back was absolutely killing him throughout that whole week. And for him to lay on top of that steel slab was, uh, was probably more sore than me shooting him in the arm. <laughs> Have you uh, appeared on his show yet? He does a podcast, Inside of You. Inside of you. No, I haven't appeared on that one yet. I'm pretty sure it's only a matter of time before he reaches out. I got to tell you, Ben, I'm a little bit lazy when it comes to doing press. I don't know why I don't, I, I shy away from interviews and stuff. I, I don't know what it is, um, but I, I get asked quite a bit to do them. And um, I guess, I guess I would do Rosie's if he, if he asked me for sure. But yeah, I'm a little weird that way. And I apologize, but, you know, this is what's cool about this situation is that, you know, you and I have a bit more of a, a personal uh, background with people that we know. And I've listened to your podcast and I thought it was really cool. And boom, here we are. Yeah, we do know a lot of the same people. I mean, we have dated a lot of the same women. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Seeing as how I've been married for 34 years. I mean, it could have been before that. Yeah, sure. <laughs> All right, I'm going to move on with another comic book thing that you were in. You appeared on 40-plus episodes of the Archie Comics adaptation Riverdale, where you played Betty Cooper's dad and ultimately a character called The Black Hood. Now, I know that you've spoken publicly several times about your disappointment that the mystery identity of the mass-murdering Black Hood turned out to be you, <laughs> but uh, I, I wanted to ask if you knew this. Did you know that in the Archie Company comics... The Black Hood was actually a hero, and when I say that, I mean he's a hero in the same sort of way that the Punisher is a hero. He's out there doling out vengeance, but it's presented in like a more heroic way. Yes, I did. I, um, I had a uh, conversation with the CEO um, of uh, the RC Comics and John Goldwater, and we talked about that. And, you know, I always had aspirations while I was in prison that I would somehow come out and redeem myself. But, you know, I didn't really commit a lot of misdemeanors and it wasn't like I was trying to be a Robin Hood, if you will, of Riverdale. You know, I, I, I killed teenagers and hung them on walls. So, yeah, I, it's a little different than the comic book adaptation of The Black Hood, absolutely. Well, it did give you a chance to... Um to hone your Hannibal Lecter impression in the prison sequences. Yes, yeah, that's true. Um, yeah, I mean, the one good thing that came out of becoming the Black Hood was I quite enjoyed, I quite enjoyed that season of actually playing the Black Hood and 
actually having a little bit more dimension than just playing Al Cooper. I always thought that I, you know, I'm, I never really figured out what the reason was to have me break out of jail and get supposedly killed. I, I thought it was kind of interesting with to just throughout the years I'm in prison. And whenever Betty's having one of her dark moments, she comes to ask my advice. I thought that would have been a really cool storyline to sort of play for a while. But as you know, Michael, I only say the words, I don't write them. <laughs> I'm just going to ask you the same question every fan asks you at every convention. Uh, what what does Cole Spruce's hair smell like? <laughs> yes, I get that quite a bit. Uh, are those really KJ's apps? You know, stuff like that, yeah. But it's cute. The one thing that I, you know, is interesting about our fan base, and of course it's different now, right? Like, Like, we have a big fan base, of course. The second, third year of our show, it was really crazy. Like I've never been on a, I've never been on a TV set where where they've put fences around the all of the work trucks. We call it a circus in the states. They call it a base camp. But the kids were having to be escorted to and from set with security, and I've never been around that before. That was that was pretty crazy. Um, now, uh, like for me, I, you know, I have kids. I know the excitement. I remember being. 12 to 14 years old and being very excited about meeting NHL hockey players and stuff. So when I'm at these conventions, I, I look at it upon that, you know, I think it's really fun to watch these kids meet Lily and Cammy and, and Cole and KJ and the rest of the young cast. Yeah. It's, it's fun to watch, you know, uh, earlier this year, we, we all got to see you spend eight episodes chasing John Cena on a little HBO show called Peacemaker. And Peacemaker, again, you may know this, you may not, was based on a Charlton Comics character from the 60s who got re-envisioned when DC bought up all the Charlton characters in the 80s. And so, yeah. on that show, you were part of what I consider to be the most spectacular title sequence maybe ever. And uh, we also got to see you get equally spectacularly axed to the head yeah. in a final scene that took your character off the board. Yes, yes, vigilante. You know, right right away when we did the, the read-through, right away when we did the read-through of that, the first three scripts of the first two, man, because we weren't we weren't allowed to read anything until we, we actually did our, our first Zoom read-through. And uh, oh, vigilante was oh, such a good character. Honestly, Michael, I, I got off, I finished the Zoom call and I phoned up my manager and I said, how come I didn't get a chance to go in and read for Vigilante? And they were like, well, he had given it. James Gunn loved the gentleman who, who was in the movie, uh, the TV show Patriot and actually phoned him up, got a hold of him and offered him the role because he liked this character from Patriot. See, this is how, this is how cool James Gunn is, right? Like he's very like... You know, for instance, I don't know if you heard the story about how I came on the show Peacemaker. Have you ever heard that? Uh, a little bit, but I'd love to hear it again. Yeah. Way back in the day, I think 2000s, right after a scary movie came out, I think it was, I went in and met with uh, Raja Gosnell to do the Scooby-Doo movie. And I could do a bit of a shaggy impression. So I went in dressed like shag. I did my shag thing. I knew that they liked me. I had a couple callbacks. The guy they went with, Matt Lillard, was absolutely perfect. I mean, like absolutely shaggy. Um, 
when I read for Peacemaker, I didn't realize, I totally forgot that James Gunn had written the Scooby-Doo movie. And when I read for Peacemaker, it came back really quick that I had the offer, like unusually quick, especially for a big project like this, James Gunn. Usually these things take a month. They're like, yeah, you're in the mix, you know, we'll, we should know soon. And, and that's usually how it goes. Well, honestly, this was like the next morning. They were like, hey, they want to make you an offer to do the show. And, I, and so then I, my agent, at, the casting people had told my agent that James Gunn remembers that I was one of his choices to play Shaggy. And so he was like, hey, I want to put Lachlan in this. And that's kind of how it went. So the one thing about James is that he's so loyal to people that he likes, you know, uh, throughout his career. I mean, you look at Michael Rooker and, you know, the people that he uses all the time. And um, I really, really hoping that I made some kind of impression on the man because I would love to be in his DC universe now. That would be amazing. Well, it's confession time. This interview is really only a stepping stone for me to get to James Gunn. I, I assume you're going to be giving me his information now? Yes, of course, Mike. <laughs> I'm gonna, I have one final comic book thing to mention. You you touched on yes. it earlier. Comic book-wise, you were also briefly, very briefly, part of the CW's Arrowverse. And you may not remember this part, but you got to utter the immortal line... This is what happens when you let freaks with masks run wild. <laughs> Was that Arrow? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's yeah. one of your lines in the show. And again, 260 IMDb credits. I'm not expecting you to remember every line you've ever said. <laughs> well, you know, the funny thing about, you know, so yes, briefly in that show, which I didn't go in knowing that I was only briefly in that show. I was I was under the impression that that character was going to be around and that character was going to be a rogue SWAT member that was going to try to hunt the masked vigilantes. Okay? So when people tell you that, you accept the show. Then they write one episode for you and you are done with the DC Universe. So for me... Not so cool. I would rather them say, hey, this is one episode. And I'd say, well, listen, is it okay if I wait and do something that, you know, where I can kind of chew up the scenery a little bit, sink my teeth into? But um, these are the things that uh, happens in the film industry when people offer you roles, Michael. Yep. Uh, you, you should have waited for, uh, it's a crazy connection, but later on on Arrow, they introduced the vigilante character right. and his identity turned out to be a mystery that ran a whole season and they did a big uh, twist ending on that you you could have been one of the suspects or actually turned out to be him by the way we didn't we didn't quite finish our uh, i knew where you were going with that vigilante anecdote before you were saying that he um he he had written it for i can't remember his first name but it's conrad it's stephen conrad's brother and uh, he had written the vigilante role for him. Yeah, I mean, honestly, when I, like to me, I mean, all the characters are great. James is genius, but vigilante, I was just like, oh my god, like, yes, maybe I'm a bit too old to play it, but man, like, if I was right back into my dead man on campus wheelhouse, I, I just feel like I could have absolutely slayed that character. And Freddie did, Freddie did a great job. Now, of course, I don't know if everyone knows that, but you know, we shot about or maybe five episodes with a different vigilante. And 
it didn't work out between him and James. So James decided that he was going to switch gears and hired uh, Freddie to come in. And up until that point, Vigilante was masked quite a bit. So Freddie just dubbed all of that. And then the rest of it was all of him that played the rest of it. So uh, I don't know really the insight of what happened. I do know that the actor felt like that he was being portrayed as being a bit silly, which I was just like, but you know, I, I don't know the guy enough. I wasn't on the set enough with him, but I was like, holy shit, bro, that is the best character you could have asked for. What were you thinking? You know what I mean? Sometimes you have to sit there and go, James Gunn, Peacemaker, I get to play Vigilante. Uh, I'm going to do my best not to fuck this up. That would have been my approach. I mean, that character is possibly the greatest spaz weirdo oh, right? ever put on film. I, I was mesmerized by the writing and the performance. Oh, yeah, that's Honestly, man, I lo listen. I love the I love playing Fitzgibbon. I love the love being part of it, man. If I could have if I could have had a crack at Vigilante, holy, I'd probably to the point where James would have said, "Okay, stop making yourself look so silly." So, Lachlan, um, normally on this show, I ask the guests to list a series of films that may have inspired them or their work, and I often ask them specifically to go as obscure as possible to list those special personal gems that most people may not have heard about rather than have every single guest repeat the AFI Top 100 list. But, in your case, you have appeared in so many lesser-known gems that since you're here, it would be a shame not to talk about those. So that is what we are going to do. We're going to talk about a bunch of really interesting, perhaps less well-known, Lachlan Monroe projects and performances. I'm just going to add, by the way, listeners, for more of a career overview and some in-depth thoughts on his place in Hollywood and how lucky he's been, listen to Lachlan's episode on the Funny in Failure podcast by Michael Cahan. It's episode 155. And also, he has a great interview on Second Act with Bonnie Somerville. That's episode 9. All right, Lachlan, I'm going to shoot some titles and ideas at you, and you can jump in with any thoughts you might have on them. I'm going to start off by mentioning the movie Duets from 2000, where your character appears in the opening sequence. You get to sing a song, and you get to be conned out of $690 in a karaoke off against <laughs> Huey Lewis. That's right. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So... See, uh, Ronnie Jackson, I believe my character's name was. That is an incredible poll because I looked that up and I can't believe you can remember a single character's name, let alone something from 23 years ago. So I played Ronnie Jackson, who felt like he was a pretty stellar career karaoke singer, but he also worked at a meat plant. I said to Huey Lewis, that's on top of what I make at the meat plant. <laughs> <laughs> Now, that's an immortal line. Dude, I love that character. Honestly, that was so much fun to sit and, you know, basically, you know, uh, Huey Lewis in the News was huge throughout my teen years. Um, to sit and watch him sing all day was amazing. The man was so charismatic and so polite and gracious. I mean, look at the red sequence jacket, bro. Like, seriously, who wouldn't do that part? Ronnie Jackson, 
Okay, so, you know, here's an interesting story. So the, the movie was uh, directed by um, Bruce Paltrow. And at the time, Bruce, Bruce was uh, dealing with uh, throat cancer. He had had surgery. And it felt, um, you know, back in when we shot that film, that's when we used to use a little bit more of an oil-based um, atmosphere smoke inside bars and stuff. So it's a little harder on the lungs. Now they use water-based. So he would direct the film from, from his trailer, and he would just relay direction through the first AD's uh, walkie-talkie, right? So I'm, I shot that sequence over two or three days. Um, you know, every once in a while, conversed face-to-face -face with Bruce, gracious man, a lovely gentleman. When I've wrapped the movie, I basically just say, okay, it's a wrap on Lachlan, the crew, you know, they kindly clap, and then you go home. And I got home, and I said to my wife, I said, ah, she goes, how was it? I go, well, it was really great. Like, honestly, it was really fun to, to play that character, to be able to sing in a movie and open the film and, and I said, but, you know, when they wrapped me, like, Bruce Peltro didn't come over and say goodbye. Usually a director will come and thank you for being in the movie and stuff. And I saw it. I felt kind of bummed about it, you know, on my own personal little ego hit, right? I felt a little bummed about it. And my wife goes, well, you, you might want to listen to the answering machine. And so Bruce Peltro left me this long, wonderful message about what he felt about me being in a movie and the performance that he felt I gave. And uh, yeah, very, uh, very lovely. And what's really cool is on the actual DVD uh, on the, you know, they, they have those, um, those uh, special features where the director will narrate the whole movie. And he, he says a, a few very lovely things about, uh, about me and my character while I'm performing the, uh, the part. So, so yes, I have a lot of fond memories about the film. And I thought it was a lot of fun. Oh, that's amazing. It's it's also amazing to think that Bruce Paltrow, while suffering from pretty extreme throat problems, was making a movie entirely about singing. Right. Yeah. And actually, uh, I don't know if a lot of people know this, but the character that Scott Speedman played was supposed to be Brad Pitt. But him and Gwyneth had, uh, had split at that point. So Brad stepped aside and Scott Speedman's uh, stepped into the role. Let's move on to another movie. I brought it up earlier in my intro, Dracula 2000. In Dracula 2000, we get to watch you in uh, the first 10 minutes of the film break into a tomb and get skewered trying to open a sealed coffin by spikes that come down from the ceiling. That's right. Uh, I mean, you're... I don't know who you actually hung out with on that movie. I'm pretty sure you spent some time with Omar Epps. Mm -hmm. But beyond that, like, that movie has Christopher Plummer, Gerard Butler, and Jennifer Esposito. I don't know if you were around long enough to see any of them. Um, yes, I, I actually was. I was, there, I was there quite a bit. I mean, I was there for about two to three weeks. Part of it on a Wednesday, then the next Monday, so you're just there. I guess I hung out a little bit. You know, I have a lot of friends in Toronto, so I hung out with a lot of friends there. Again, I'm not much of a, I must say, I'm sorry to say this and disappoint people, but I'm not, you know, I gravitate towards crew and I gravitate towards acquaintances that have in the past. I don't hang out with a lot of actors. I don't know why. It's not like I don't like actors. I just tend to sort of gravitate towards crew members and stuff. But, um, 
I hung out enough to wait around. So here, here's an interesting thing about back then. It was Gerard Butler. Uh, we were all waiting to find out who Dracula was. They were taking quite a few days, weeks to cast him. And one day the director said, hey, we finally found our Dracula. And everyone's like, who is it? They go, oh, it's this actor out of Scotland. He, he just finished the miniseries, Attila the Hunt. We were like, yeah, okay, sure. They were like, yeah, his name's uh, Gerard Butler. And we're like, okay. And so the first day I met Jerry, I immediately, I immediately <laughs> knew the man was going to be a star. He was handsome. He was roguish. He had a, the Scottish accent. It was just something about him that was just so appealing and his sex appeal. And, you know, this is coming from a heterosexual male as well, Michael. So here, I'll give you an antidote. On, you, know, you want to talk about stories. So we were all at the Sony lot reading for Eight-Legged Freaks, right? The amazing movie, Eight-Legged Freaks. Jerry Butler went in right before me. So I read for the role that I think David Arquette ended up playing. Am I right, Michael? Yep. That's the right guy. So Jerry Butler went into the room. Uh, he was, and I was the next up. Okay. Jerry Butler's in the room for a half hour. All I hear is females laughing and giggling. And I thought to myself, this is probably not the guy to follow into a room. So I politely went up to the desk and I said, you know what? I'm really sorry. I have to go plug the meter for my car. And I went outside and I waited for about 20 minutes for two or three other guys to go in between me and Jerry Butler. <laughs> we call that in the industry a veteran move, Michael, a veteran move. Too bad it didn't turn out to, to get you the actual part. It'd be an even better anecdote. Yeah, it would have been great. Um, anyhow, so to get back to um, to Dracula 2000, uh, Patrick Lussier, uh, way back in the day, was an editor in Vancouver. And he, I believe, edited a few episodes of a Canadian TV series that I did called Northwood way back in the day. Oh, cool. So that's kind of a weird uh, connection. But um, so when I did scary movie i signed um like a picture deal with a uh, dimension miramax and that is why i ended up in dracula 2000 i didn't go out of my way to seek out a character where i died in the first 20 pages <laughs> uh that care they asked me they said hey would you go to toronto and do this film and the way i look at things i'm like okay so you know if i go and do this one then you know maybe they'll look for something where I can be like, you know, first, second, third lead of something. And, you know, I always have those in my head, the nativity of a Canadian. And so this is why I do these things, always thinking that, you know what? Okay. So, you know, I'll help them out. Maybe they'll help me out. Right. But they never, the help me outs don't happen a lot in Hollywood. If you know what I'm saying. I do. So the year after Dracula 2000, you starred in a movie. I, I have to admit, I haven't seen this one, but I watched the trailer yesterday. But you are the star of this. It's a 2001 movie called Night Club. And that is night with a K, as in the Black Knight. Yes! I'll actually tell the audience the one-line uh, synopsis from IMDb, which is, A wannabe <laughs> actor becomes a bouncer yeah. and is seduced by the fast-paced world of Los Angeles nightlife. 
And this is you <laughs> and Lou Diamond Phillips and Andrew Divoff. Yes. I'm a big Andrew Divoff fan. That guy is yeah, like the greatest he, villain. I know. He's good, right? I actually just ran into him. I was out in Toronto doing uh, a little arc on the show Reacher. Oh, that's breaking news. That's not even on our, your IMDb I know. page. Yeah, that's right. It's not. So Reacher, yeah. So uh, while I was out doing the show Reacher, I went and I did a little uh, signing at the uh, Niagara Falls Comic Con. And Andrew Devoff was there. And I haven't seen him since we did that movie together. So it was kind of cool to, to sit and chat with him and say hi. Yeah, Devoff is the, the djinn in that Wishmaster movie, the first two. Right, right. Uh, my first time working with Lou Diamond Phillips, who is amazing, like true gent, like absolute true gent. I love Lou Diamond Phillips. We had a lot of fun on that. Yes, I, 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 I enjoyed that project. People always say, oh, you know, small parts, big parts. It's all about the actor. It's like, no, listen, playing small parts is fine. And I go in, I have, I'm 35 years in this business. I have a lot of director friends. I have a lot of producer friends. I end up in small parts in movies because... People ask me to come and, you know, be part of their film. They're like, hey, you know, this is the part we have. I'd love you to play it. I, I don't expect you to, but I'd love you to. That's how that all happens. So that being said, when you have something to do in a film, when you can create some dimension and create some character, it definitely is more fun. I mean, it's more fun to play one, two or three in a movie than it is to play 37. You know what I mean? So I, I, I quite enjoyed that film. I thought it had an interesting arc. I mean, you're trying to make these movies on not huge budgets. And the biggest thing is time. Trying to make a movie is more like there are a lot of good scripts out there, but if you only, if you only have 18 days to shoot these movies, it's, it's tough. You know, you get to the end of the day and what happens is like, okay, uh, yeah, we got to tear that page out because we, we don't have time to shoot that. Well, you start tearing pages out of a script and all of a sudden there's holes in the story and you know, then it, then it all becomes me and my fault and, Hey, why did you do that movie? I'm like, well, it was pretty good the day I read it. Sometimes they don't end up that great. And sometimes it's the opposite. Sometimes you, you read a movie that you're like, ah, okay, well, maybe I can find something to sort of elevate this. And then it comes out and it's like, wow, that actually turned out better than I thought. But yes, uh, getting back to Nightclub, quite enjoyed, uh, quite enjoyed that, that film. Oh, well, it has a tiny thing in common with the next film I was going to bring up. Uh, it's another mm -hmm. movie about an actor doing something different. And that is a right. movie called Camouflage, starring Leslie Nielsen. And that movie is about an actor discovering the dark side of private investigation when he takes on an assignment in rural Oregon with a crusty old P.I. <laughs> so you worked on a major Leslie Nielsen movie. Yes, that was my first lead in an American feature right there. And I screen tested quite a bit for it then went in and screen tested with Leslie and it movie came down to myself and Polly Shore. What do you think of that? I think they chose wisely. Uh, I think, uh, I think it was Leslie. I think it was Leslie say, which was nice. And also too, which was funny is that James Keach who directed the movie told me that he, uh, at his little uh, home theater at his house, he screened the audition for his kids and all of his kids picked me because they loved Dead Men on Campus and Night at the Roxbury. And oh, that's so great. I, I got a couple little uh, shout-outs for that. So, uh, yes, I will honestly tell you, 
I loved, absolutely loved that movie. I loved that character. I thought that that movie was really going to be an opportunity for me to sort of jump up the ladder a little bit. What happened to that movie was that it was written originally by Billy Bob Thornton. And when the movie came out, Billy Bob Thornton, it was, you know, it, it had been worked on a bit. It went into litigation with Billy Bob and his lawyers. Then the movie just, it was supposed to be a theatrical film. It went straight to DVD and, you know, not a lot of people saw it. But I do think it's a really well shot film. I thought it was so funny on, on page. And Leslie Nielsen was, I mean, yeah, I just... I just watched and learned. He gave me ideas every day on everything that we were doing. And, um, you know, that you just absorb stuff like that. I've, I've had that my whole career, right from the movie Unforgiven. I've been blessed to work with people that I just sit and I watch. I don't need to talk a lot. I don't need to do much. I just need to be there, sit and watch. Well, Lachlan, I cannot believe what you were telling me about Billy Bob Thornton because I have never heard a single story about him having difficulties or being annoyed with anybody revolving around a film he worked on. <laughs> <laughs> so sorry, I don't I don't know that much about the man. I you know, I like his work but so do I. You know. Yeah. Huge, I but huge you fan. know, to me it's like I just don't I have a different personality. I'm not the I'm not a tortured soul trying to find myself in this industry, you know what I'm saying? So Absolutely. To me it to me it's like bro. You get paid a lot of money to create characters, relax, enjoy it. That, that's just my theory, you know. It's also interesting to see people who are tortured to throw their laundry out, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> but I love the fact that you brought that up because out of all the, you know, obscure movies that you're talking about, that was one that was definitely I quite, quite, quite enjoyed. And again, that was my first opportunity to be a lead in an American movie. I'm going to bring up another film now that you have a very small part in, but I liked this movie and no one's ever seen it. It was called Pressure and it came out in 2002. It's a Care Smith movie. And you play like his buddy. Hey, hold on a second. Hold on a second. What do you mean I had a small part? It was me and Kerr carried the movie, bro. Uh, my recollection was that you were only in it for a little bit. You are the co-lead? Yeah, man. I'm sorry. My 21-year-old memory of it is vague. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. That was actually a fun film. Kerr was awesome, man. We'd never, we laughed very hard throughout that whole film. Oh, cool. What well, were we, we were too, we were too... We were two medical students that were at, we were at a, we were at a, um, a weekend medical convention. And then on the way home, we stopped at a bar and it was, uh, in the middle of nowhere, just happened to be the, uh, cheerleader night or something. Is that right? It's been too long for me. <laughs> I was going to stay yeah. vague on the plot. Oh yeah. I don't, I honestly, I, I'm kind of rem forgetting about the plot but i do i do remember having a lot of fun with kerr on that film oh, he well, was great my comment was that it is surprisingly well written and features the sequence in which a hillbilly character is threatening care with a gun he fires the gun and then he jams it down his pants because he says he likes that nice warm feeling of a freshly fired gun <laughs> and then he proceeds 
to shoot himself in the crotch, which is essentially oh what sets off all the events that occur after that. Oh my lord, I totally forgot about that. And I don't know if you knew this or remember it, but that movie yeah. was written it was written by Craig Brewer, who went on to write and direct Hustle and Flow. Really? Yeah. Because I know it was directed by a gentleman named Richard Gale. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. Nice, nice gentleman. I was I was a fan of that one just for its weirdness and charm. It had it was a better movie than I expected for the style, size, budget kind of thing. Yeah. You know what's funny? I often I'm often reminded of that movie because it was produced by a gentleman in Vancouver who went on to open up a, a film company here that does quite a bit of work. And whenever I go for meetings at, at their offices, the pressure, the pressure poster is right when you walk into the door or in the front door. Well, that'll keep it in the front of your mind for sure. Yeah, man. Yeah. All right, let's let's talk if you if you if you have anything to say about it. Let's talk a little bit about Freddy versus Jason. Where as I mentioned, boy, boy do you get killed and killed again in that film. Yes. Um okay, let's talk about Freddy versus Jason. Well, I love the cast, right? They were all kind of fresh and new. Jason Ritter hadn't really done much. Um Gosh, I have a long-winded story about that. You know, that movie That movie was offered to me, and it just turned out that I thought, okay, well, this would be a good movie to do because my wife was pregnant at the time, and we were going to shoot in Vancouver, and I thought, yeah, it would be a good time to be in Vancouver with, you know, my wife maybe, you know, close to giving birth at that time. And... You know, I got to tell you, I was never really a horror movie guy. I, you know, they get, they kept getting mad at me because I kept mispronouncing um, Jason Voorhees' name. I kept saying Jason Voorhees. Then they would go cut. And I'm like, what? And they're like, it's Voorhees. And I go, I said Voorhees. And they're like, no, Voorhees, Jason Voorhees. Anyhow, Ronnie Yu was a dick. And I've never said that about any director I've worked with. I mean, the guy thought he was making Gone with the Wind. He was so mean to the young cast, such a jerk on set. I'm like, really, bro? You're making Freddy versus Jason here. Let's have some fun. Let's tell a story, right? You don't have to call your lead actress, your lead actress fat just because she's not a rail-thin actress, right? I mean, the, the lead costume designer quit the movie because he couldn't believe how rude he was to the lead actor, Monica Kina. Wow. Yeah, man. So I have fond memories of the movie because of the cast I worked with and the ADs I worked with and the producers I worked with. But for Ronnie Yu, I'm like, uh, so Ron, so, you know, Ronnie Yu getting mad at me and treating me like I'm a day player. I'm like, what have you done, Ronnie? Oh, you've directed one movie called Bride of Chucky. Okay. All right. So that gives you every right to berate everyone because of your past experiences in your, in your infinite film knowledge. So, and I don't usually go off on people, but sometimes I find myself just kind of dancing around the issue. And maybe sometimes you should just tell it like it is, you know? Oh, absolutely. I appreciate the candor. You, you, you know, you did work with an incredible cast on that movie. People who were just up and coming at the time, but I yes. mean, just the Canadian names alone. There's Catherine Isabel. Yeah. Brendan Fletcher. Fletch was in there. Zach Ward. Yeah, it is. It is a stellar, stellar cast. I'm actually pretty 
I'm pretty delighted by how that movie turned out. Uh, I, I, I know it's a trashy exploitation film, but it is a lot of dumb fun to watch. You know, and it was it's lovely, right? Lovely movie. They shot it very, I mean, it, it looks really good. And again, like I said, I don't, I enjoyed playing that character. I, I just never was a big horror fan. So I didn't realize that, you know, and it was a hard character to play too, because of me not knowing much about these Friday the 13th movies and Jason Voorhees, my whole character was exposition. And I'm like basically trying to let the audience know who Jason Voorhees is in this movie. And I don't even know personally. So, so I find exposition really hard dialogue to deliver because it's, it's weird. It's like, you're just telling shit on screen information for people to catch up on. Um, I will give you a fun anecdote about, so Ken, I know Ken Kersinger for many years who played Jason and um, we had choreographed that, that particular move quite a bit because, you know, it's hard for him to see with his mask on and, you know, when I was going to go run out of the room there, once he puts his machete into the console and he grabs me and then electrocutes me, you know, it was pretty much choreographed that he knew where he had to reach over to grab me in the chest, right? So, take one, he puts his machete into the console, the visual effects light the sparks, which cause his arm to catch on fire which causes his distraction of grabbing me in the chest to punching me in the forehead very hard. So the first take of that scene, I'm basically almost knocked out flat on my back on the floor while they run in and put Ken's arm out with a fire extinguisher. So when you watch that sequence, picture that for the first take because that hurt immensely. Wow. <laughs> yeah, man. So, Eddie. Yeah. You, you have a lot of good stories about this movie. <laughs> oh, yeah. Gosh. But I, again, I, don't get me wrong. I, you know, um, Kelly Rowland was really cool to work with. And, yeah, I'd known Monica a little bit because she had worked on a film where one of my really good friends played her father. So I'd met her a, a few years when she was a little younger and just a lovely, lovely girl. And, uh, yeah. I saw Chris Marquette not too long ago. Sometimes we, sometimes I go and I do these conventions where they have a few people from all of the Freddy, uh, from the Friday the Thirteenth movies, and um, every once in a while I'll be there with Zach Ward or Chris Marquette or Monica Keena or someone, you know. And it's always interesting to see all of the paraphernalia that people ask you to sign, especially the, the big Camp Crystal Lake book that's out. It's really interesting. Um, that has all the friday the 13th movies in it and stuff oh, that's really cool man um yeah and then one of one other fond memory from that movie was my nephew at the time was about seven maybe six and he came to set one day to watch um robert england put on his freddy krueger makeup he got to sit in the chair and watch them do that that is very cool yeah uh, I'll move on and mention a movie I haven't seen, so you can't quiz me on it, but uh, I saw that you made a movie in 2006 with David Carradine called Final Move, and uh, I just wanted to ask about that experience. The The one line right up for that is hilarious. It's a psychic and a cop track a serial killer who is copying a killer who just got executed. Yes. 
I don't really remember a whole bunch about it. I believe that Rachel, she's a supermodel. She was married to Rod Stewart. Rachel Hunter. Rachel Hunter was in that movie. She was lovely. Uh, David Carradine was cool. I, you know, I did like maybe four days of work with him. He seemed really cool. I had done a, a movie called Blacktop. Oh yeah, I, I have that on my list. Where, right. So that was the first movie I did with Meatloaf, and then but Meat was also in Final Move, so that was cool to see him. And I believe, yes, Joey Travolta directed that movie. That is correct. So it was really interesting to to chat about Joey and we talked about, you know, we talked a lot about Scientology. And I remember one day he said to me, he goes, you know, Lachlan, I'll sum it up for you. Think about Scientology and then think about my brother who is the Messiah of Scientology. <laughs> and I kind of went, okay. And uh, walked away just thinking about what he actually meant by that. But I'll never forget that. My brother who is the Messiah to Scientology. Yeah. Wow. Interesting guy, though. Yeah, yeah interesting guy. Inter like, you know, again, you know, I don't really remember that movie too, too much. But I but uh, again, I, every every movie I do is a journey and it's another experience. And, you know, it's another chance to meet to meet people that you may go on and work with again or that you have worked with before. So. But nice poll there. When you and I started emailing back and forth about chatting, I, I, you got directed to my podcast and you listened to the episode that I did with Jesse V. Johnson. And I didn't realize at the time, you've actually made a movie with Jesse V. Johnson. <laughs> you did a film called The Package in 2012. This is yeah. the Steve Austin Dolph Lundgren movie. Yes, I did. Again, that was, uh, I, I think I only did maybe a day or two, but I played Steve Austin's brother. Right. Yeah, no, was I, I I saw it way too long ago. To right, remember right. The specifics. Yeah. Yes, but okay. I remember Jesse being a really cool dude. A friend of mine produced that and asked if I'd come in and then play that part. And I said, Yeah, of course. So um, I think Brad Creeboy produced that film, if I'm not mistaken. So you know, it's nice. You know, you make these acquaintances as you go along. You know, I'm, I haven't worked with Jesse since, but you know, hopefully there there will be a day where you know there's three or four guys that he that you know he meets with to play a character and uh we sit in a room and we chat and you know because of that relationship you end up getting a chance to work with him again you know so that, that i always i I'm a, I'm a true believer in that 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 that's karma and you know it doesn't always work out that way michael but you know i look at that situation with james gunn and i go wow that's amazing that all it took was a just a quick memory for him right and you think, why did it have to be 20 years? Like, why wasn't I putting in front of him in front of him for Guardians? It may not have been 20 years, Michael. You could have been a rocket. <laughs> I could have been a rocket, exactly. No, but it's it's interesting. This industry is very much a, you know, it's a, it's about it's about just staying relevant, right? Because it's it's a 10 second memory industry. You know, if you're not right in front of people, they just tend to forget. So. It's uh, it's interesting. So yes, yeah, that's right. Jesse B. Johnson and I actually did work on that film. And I got to tell you honestly, I didn't remember that until you just said that. 
the other thing that's really funny about that movie, again, a movie you worked on for a day or two, but it's worth mentioning, is it's written by a guy named Derek Kolstad. And Derek Kolstad is the guy who created John Wick. And the lead character of the package is a character named Tommy Wick. So he had that name in his head for quite a while. That's amazing, hey? Just think, Gosh. you're inches away from the John Wick universe. John Wick, yeah. See, if I just uh, realize this stuff and stay in touch with more people, then, you know, this stuff would manifest itself. People always tell me after Night at the Roxbury, they're like, why didn't you stay in touch with Will Ferrell, man? Like, he puts all the same guys in his movies. And I often think about that, and I go, yeah, I guess. I guess. i just not really that guy, you know? Night of the Roxbury is another one I haven't seen in over 20 years yeah. I mean, I don't remember how big your part was in that movie. I think you were one of their buddies, right? Yes, I was their gym trainer buddy. And then at the end of, and then, you know, I go out with Catan and we're talking about his brother and his wedding and Catan's all depressed. And then at the wedding, at the end of the movie, I actually end up marrying Molly Shannon. And I don't know if you remember, do you remember who the priest was? Mark McKinney. I do love me some kids in the hall. You know what I'm saying? And here's another here's another one for you from that movie. That day we were shooting the movie and Molly had her bridesmaids and Will had his best man who I was his I was his best man because Chris Kattan and him were fighting and you know Chris Kattan didn't want him to marry Molly so he didn't show up at the wedding and so I was Will's best man and I was watching the movie Training Day one day and when Denzel Washington went to his apartment and his girlfriend, he went into the bedroom and his girlfriend was on the bed. I'm sitting there looking at her going, how do I know this girl? I know this girl from somewhere. And Ava Mendez was Molly Shannon's bridesmaid in a night at the Roxbury. And she doesn't have a line, but when Will steps up to marry Molly, he looks over and he, <laughs> he looks at Ava Mendez and he goes, what's up? And she just kind of giggled. So you'll have to check that out in the, in the movie because, yeah, it's weird. It's weird. I've worked with a lot. You know, like I've, I have this career where that's happened to me a lot. Like I remember seeing Evangeline Lilly for the first time and thinking, I feel like I know this girl. Then someone reminded me that, yeah, don't you remember? She was one of those, the extras in White Chicks. She was one of the white models at the white party wearing the weird outfits. I'm like, are you kidding me? So there you go, bro. Not so you go back to Dead Man on Campus, Allison Hannigan. Allison Hannigan was in that before American Pie. Poppy Montgomery, that was her first movie. She was absolutely new. Jason Siegel was in the beginning of Dead Man on Campus. Linda Cardellini had a small part in Dead Man on Campus. Isn't that crazy? It's it's like a freaks and geeks reunion. Dude, it's it's so weird. When I go through my when I go through my career sometimes and I see people and they become stars i go i feel like i've worked with that person like i remember seeing the little uh jacob trombley from vancouver when he was up for a golden globe award and i'm watching him up at the podium i'm like i know this kid i realized he played my son in a short that i did for a friend of mine in vancouver about two years two years before he he you know started to get all his his recognition for his films yeah man pretty pretty crazy when you think about it like that but i mean i've been doing tv movies with ryan reynolds when he was 14 years old you know now whatever happened to that guy i don't know but i you know what he wasn't very good back then either so 
Well, speaking <laughs> of people you have collaborated with of note, I am astonished as I went through your IMDb to realize you have appeared in three movies directed by Uva Bowl. Uh, <laughs> a Rampage movie, Assault on Wall Street, Heart of America, and, and I yeah. only have one question for you about Uva Bowl. Did he ever threaten to box you? Uh, no. No, he didn't. No. Uh, Uva Bull was just a, an amazing character study for me, bro. Just amazing. Like, like I love Uva. Don't get me wrong. He's got like an amazing personality, very generous. Just, But his directing style and his filmmaking style is that of a really, really bored billionaire. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, it's like, I have all this money. What should I do? I know. I think I'm going to buy a film and direct it. <laughs> because it's just, he's very interesting on set. Uh, you forgot one. I've actually done one more. I did in Name of the King, bro. Wow. Right? By the way, calling uh, Uva Bull a bored billionaire might be the nicest thing anyone has ever said about him. <laughs> you know what, though? He's just always been really gracious to me, man. I have nothing bad to say. I I find him interesting the way he shuns Hollywood and you know, but you know, but he was very fortunate, right? He was he was in the era of all this hedge fund money that would fund films, right? Times have changed. Times have changed. They don't make they don't make these ten to twenty million dollar movies anymore, right? They either make them for four million or under, or you raise enough money and then if the studio likes it, they make 40 million or 50 million and over. So that's, that's kind of what, you know, Uva was in that time where he was getting a lot of like big hedge fund films to, you know, have big budgets for these, these movies that he was making. I mean, the first in the name of the King apparently was like a $60 million movie. Did you know that? No, I had no idea. That was the one with Burt Reynolds. But when you think about it, it's like, wow, you raised $60 million to make a movie. That's unheard of. You know, in the name of the King Two, which I was in, not even close to sixty million. <laughs> I think, I think the props, the props uh, master on in the name of the King Two told me that in in the first movie, the props budget was bigger than the whole budget for the second movie. <laughs> so there you go. But yeah, Uve Uve is pretty interesting. When he asked me to do um, Rampage. I said to him, I said, oh, yeah, well, yeah, of course I'll come and do it with you. Um, can you send me the script? He goes, oh, we have no script. I have 20, I have 28 pages written. We're just going to make it up as we go. <laughs> I was like, what? And we did. Dude, we made that up as we went, that movie. And it, honestly, I don't watch a lot of movies I'm in. I happened to watch that. It didn't turn out that bad. Like, Fletcher was great in it. Brandon improvised tons of dialogue, and him and I had these scenes together where we just kind of had an idea where we needed to go, and we just improv it. Well, I got to say, when, when it comes to Uva Bowl, I started out with him, his first, I don't know, 10 years of his career i could not stand the movies he was making oh I was right no fun with them but then yeah. he did in fact make two movies i really really liked uh he mm -hmm. made a very extreme horror movie called seed in 2006 okay and the original rampage is pretty damn good right so he has managed to uh sneak in there and impress me a couple of times right. so 
Was was I in the original Rampage or was I in the second one? You're in a movie called Rampage Capital Punishment. Oh, okay. Okay. There is also Rampage President Down. That's a third one, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't see the first Rampage. No, it's Brendan's great in it. Yeah. No, he's good, man. Fletch is really good. I've always liked him. You know, he was very close to dying. Hey, did you ever hear that story? There was a time there where it's like, how, where's Brendan Fletcher? What's he been doing? Well, I'm just going to give you a quick version of what I know. He was on set. He had a prop gun. And he went, oh, hey, look at this. And he put it in his mouth and he pulled the trigger. He didn't know it was loaded. All, he was very lucky. He had it on an angle where, it, where the airsoft or whatever was in there didn't go up into his brain. It went out his mouth. And uh, yeah, man, he went away. He was away for a little while because of that recovering wow i guess he never heard about john eric hexham right it's uh yeah so uh but i've always really liked brendan and he's a he's a really good actor yeah he did a great interview on the movies that made me with joe dante and josh olsen just mm -hmm. did one of the episodes and uh singled out a movie he singled out a bunch of movies that were interesting but he brought up the last boy scout the bruce willis film which i thought was a very bold choice to bring up on that show and he really defended it well which i guess will bring me around to asking you about your bruce willis experience i just wanted to touch on the fact that you have made five at least mm -hmm. five bruce willis movies that's how many i could count mm-hmm so two sci-fi-ish movies and three weird police movies. Yeah. So the very first movie I did with Bruce was in Atlanta. And it was like right when the pandemic was, I remember in the hotel room, this is about how close it was to everything shutting down. I was in my hotel room. All of a sudden it's like, hey man, uh, turn on the sports channel that they just closed down a basketball game in Sacramento because a player tested positive for that COVID thing. And so I was in Atlanta when that was happening. And uh, then the NHL shut down and oh, it was just crazy. But again, you know, I was asked to do the movie. A friend of mine produced it. Another friend of mine directed it. I get down there. They give me the script. It like now I'm like, oh, hold on a second. What a second. I die now within like the first 15 pages. And they're like, yeah, we rewrote it. I'm like, I'm like, okay, fine. I'm here. You guys are my friends. But that's the only thing I don't like about that type of stuff. Was that on Apex or Cosmic Sin? That was on Cosmic Sin. Then I went and did Apex during the pandemic. And we shot that on Vancouver Island. Now, the problem was is that there was a 14-day quarantine at the time. And the producers couldn't afford to fly Bruce to Vancouver Island to put him up anywhere for 14 days. Plus, he wouldn't have done it. So... They met in Bellingham, the director and the producer and a small little crew, and shot all of Bruce's stuff in the forest, all that stuff, and then basically had a Bruce photo double do the rest of the movie with all of us. Oh, that is not a surprise. It is very clear when you watch that film that he oh, is yeah, yeah. shooting his role out in a day or two. Oh, yeah. All of them, right? So that was the first time that I... Uh, working with Bruce and while we were, cause I didn't even ever see him on Apex, right? I didn't, he wasn't ever around. He just did his stuff in Bellingham. Um, on Apex, 
I knew that, like, you know, he gets fed lines in his earpiece, and but there was no, like, there was no real telling of, you know, what was happening uh, physically to him and, and everything. It, I, it wasn't really relevant to me. I didn't really notice it. But then when I did the Night Trilogy, the first one was shot in New Mexico. The rest of them are shot in Vancouver. Uh, yes, I could. I saw the deterioration of his memory and his and everything, and it was really, it was kind of sad to see, and um, and it was hard because you know you'd have I don't know why, but in this situation they would write three page scenes with me and Bruce, and he would get, you know, maybe a couple lines out, and then I'd have to do the rest of the scene with a script supervisor, and you know, so pretty tough those last three movies, and it was to the point where I was like. I think it may be time for his good friends and the people around him to say, "Hey, Bruce, let's uh, let's uh, let's call it a day. Let's let's go golfing. Let's uh, hang with your fam for a while, right?" So, I'm glad. Yeah, I'm glad they made that decision. But a real gentleman, you know what I mean? Like, you know, the the moments of when he has full clarity, just to like really, really like the Bruce Willis that we all see on screen and you know, very engaging, but unfortunately that type of condition, you know, like there would be a couple of times where I'd have to reintroduce myself on set to him. So yeah, I, Edward Drake, who directed every one of the movies I've ever done with Bruce. I, I love the guy. You know, there, there are certain times when you just go, I totally get how it is in this industry that people need to make a living and they're doing everything they can. Right. And then you go, man, if that guy just was given a better opportunity, and that's one of the guys. I will say one thing about the Detective Night movies. Now, I sat through them out of um, loyalty to Bruce Willis for his decades and decades of excellent films leading into his last four years of very hard-to-watch movies. But I, I specifically watched all three Detective Night movies because I knew I was going to talk to you. And I don't love them, but the third movie is the best one. They actually progressively get a little better. So is the third one the one that's shot in, looks like, New Mexico? Well, it's the one with uh, Val Kilmer's son as the lead. Oh, yeah. Okay. So that's supposed to be the first one. <laughs> that would have made a lot more sense, although you do have some lines of dialogue to cover the fact that it is the third movie because you right. talk about the wheelchair. Exactly. So I ended up in the wheelchair to end up in a wheelchair throughout the, the whole trilogy. When the studio told Ed that they wanted to change the uh, the release of the films, like the order of the release of the movies, Ed and I and about four people went and shot little things where I'm being rehabbed so that I could go out of the wheelchair to do the New Mexico stuff, which was supposed to be the first movie. Well, it is, it is the one they should have released first. It made the most right. sense to go that way. So I don't know. I haven't seen any of them, so I don't really know how they are, what they're like. I, I just know that as we were shooting, I was like, how in the hell can the studio see dailies and go, okay, we got a movie here. How can you make a movie where the star of the movie can't do more than two lines of a scene? I don't know. To me, it's like at that point, you should have made this like The Matrix, and you should have made Bruce the Keanu Reeves character that just basically – doesn't say much, but he's always around. And then give all the dialogue to the to the other characters so that they can drive the story. Now, I know you can't do that because you're trying to sell these movies around the world as Bruce Willis movies, but 
it was, it just, it stymied me. I was just like, at some point, someone has to go, ah, yeah, we can't do this anymore. That's what I was thinking. So again, you know, it was just for them to change the order of the film to make me have to go and, you know, and they didn't pay. Ed did that all on his own. Like we did that all on our own. The studio wasn't going to pay for it, but that was like, I got to do something. You're in a wheelchair. All of a sudden, the next movie, you're running around with Bruce. So let's do some rehab scenes where your willpower to come back. So I don't know how that turned out, my friend, but yeah. There, there are three TV shows that I thought were interesting you've done appearances on, mm-hmm. and uh, you can talk about any of them you want. I'll just tell you what they all are. You get to choose. You were on an episode of The Dead Zone that featured a Breakfast Club reunion with Anthony Michael Hall and Ali Sheedy. You were mm-hmm. on an episode of Psych, mm-hmm. which I was a show I always enjoy with James Roday and Dulé Hill and mm-hmm. Timothy Amundsen. And you were also on an episode of Burn Notice, where you played a character named Dr. Jed, who takes care of Bruce Campbell in one sequence. <laughs> That's right. Any thoughts you have on any of those, I'd love to hear them. Matt Next created that. He was really cool. He directed that. Uh, okay, so Dead Zone, wicked episode. I am this old acquaintances with Anthony Michael Hall's character, who, of course, plays the Christopher Walken character from the movie. He can see things when he touches people. I have a heart condition. And I come to him and I ask him if he can tell me what my outcome is. And he tells me, he goes, sorry, I don't do it. That's not how this works. That's against my morality. Well, he used to date my sister, Ali Sheedy. He touches my arm one day and realizes that there's an, an encounter that he has with Ali in the episode where they have an argument. She blasts out of his house, jumps in her car. She gets killed in a car accident and that's the heart that i received to live so it's really good it's a really good episode so i quite enjoyed that uh i'd worked with ali in a tv movie a few years prior so i'd known her i'd never worked with anthony michael hall i've worked with judd nelson and i've worked with molly ringwald the only person out of the breakfast club i haven't worked with yet is um emilio estevez so that's that's kind of interesting, right? So I really enjoyed that Dead Zone episode. Uh, the Psych episode, yes, I really love Rode and Hill. That was fun to do. Uh, I played the director of a reality television show. So I remember The Miz being in it, you know, the wrestler, The Miz. So I remember him being around. Um, Burn Notice was fun because I shot that in Florida. Bruce Campbell was cool. Uh, the lead of the show was kind of a dick. <laughs> Oh, tell us more. I love Jeffrey Donovan, but I desperately want to hear stories about people who are dicks. (laughs) Well, you know, the funny thing is, is what I don't understand about people in general is that Jeffrey Donovan, before he got any lead roles or burn notice, we did an episode of Miami or CSI Miami together. And we hung out at the hotel after work and, you know, we just chatted. And then when I did burn notice, for some reason, I had to reintroduce myself. And I always wonder, why is it when people get leads in shows that they forget who you are? Why do you have to reintroduce yourself? So I'll just end it there. And it's funny also, okay, so I won't end it there. It's funny how not a lot of crew talk about you in a very good light. That's where I'll end it. Matt Nix was awesome. The creator of the show, love that guy. 
And then, so the one other episode of television that I thought was really, really cool, that was one of my favorite jobs in 35 years, was I did an episode of the TV show Without a Trace. And I played a character who was a young cop who had to go undercover as a real estate agent to try and infiltrate the mob for money laundering. As I'm undercover, one of the guys takes me to this brothel, dance kind of brothely club, where they, where they basically are bringing over really, really young Russian girls and making them their sex slaves in a sense. My character blows his cover to save these girls. And it's, it's a really good episode of television. It's shot really well. It's one of the only times that the cast ever interacted with the guest star because usually it's all about them missing and the, and the cast trying to find them. So I have this great scene with Anthony LaPaoli at the end of the, the show, um, who I think is brilliant. I think he's really good. Um, so that's probably the favorite television, episodic television piece I've ever, I think I've done. My favorite, yeah. Without a Trace, it was called Lone Star. So whatever episode, I can't remember the season, but it was called Lone Star. So that was fun. So you have an upcoming movie that I just saw a listing for that looks really interesting. You're in a film called Totally Killer by Nanachka Khan, mm -hmm. and that movie looks great. It's a time travel murder mystery film, which I think is kind of a comedy as well, with uh, Julie Bowen and yeah. Kiernan Shipka and Randall Park. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really fun, man. That's a Blumhouse film, and uh, yes, it has all those elements of a, a horror slasher, a bit of a comedy, and a little bit of a back-to-the-future essence to it, and... Uh, and Kiernan Shipka is so good. And Julie Bowen and I play husband and wife, and she's fantastic. And Nash was so great. Like, I, yeah, that's going to be a really fun movie to see. I, I think you're going to dig that one. It, it's good. It has a lot of cool elements and thought it was shot really well and written really well. And I'm excited for that one to come out. I don't watch a lot of movies I'm in. That one, I might actually go see that one. Ran on my roof, lost to me softly. 